Well, hey, RCC, thanks for tuning in. It is great to be back with you again, even if it is digitally this time. And if it's your first time, I'm Matt. I hope this isn't your last time because this is an incredible church with people who really are for you and they want the best for you. They want something for you and not from you. And so I hope today you find this to be helpful and you find this to be inspiring because let's be honest, we could all use a little inspiration and encouragement during this time, couldn't we? This has been a hard year. This has been a hard season for many of you. But the thing I want to remind you of today is that this year, this season, it will not last forever. It's not going to be hard forever. And so what I want to do is I want to begin by giving you a question to reflect on. And the thing I love about this question is this question takes me and it shoots me into the future and allows me to look back on my present situation and gain a little perspective. Because in the moment, and you've experienced this too, in the moment, things just seem so hard, they seem so difficult, that oftentimes we lose perspective and we make some choices and decisions that maybe we wouldn't make normally. But this question I'm about to give you, if you will spend some time reflecting on it, it will forward you right into the future and allow you to look back on your current circumstances, on your current situation, and maybe have a little better perspective, maybe make some better decisions. So here's the question. What story do you want to be told about you? When we're on the other side of the pandemic, when we're on the other side of all the things happening in our lives right now, what story do you want to be told about you? Because listen, people are going to tell a story about you. They are. Your kids, they're going to have a story that a few years from now, when people are talking about this season in our lives, they're going to tell a story about you. Your parents, they're going to tell a story about you. Your brothers and your sisters, your coworkers, your classmates, your bosses, your friends at church, other friends you've got, they're all going to tell a story about you. They're all going to tell a story about me. So what story do you hope they tell? What story do you want to hear? Is it going to be a story of, he was so anxious, oh my gosh, she was so afraid? Is it going to be a story of, he was so selfish during that time, she was so stingy? They never thought about what was best for other people. It was like all of a sudden when everything got difficult, they just started thinking about themselves. They just disappeared. They didn't worry about how they could help somebody else. They only worried about how to help themselves. What story are they going to tell? Is it going to be one of those? Or is it going to be a better story? Is it going to be a story that makes you proud? Is it going to be a story you're going to be glad to hear them share? Well, here's the good news. You get to choose what story they write. The pen is in your hand. The keyboard is at your fingertips. Because you are writing that story right now, one decision, one choice at a time. More on that in just a minute. This is episode three of Tough as Nails. And Paul, our lead pastor here at RCC, has done a phenomenal job reminding us of a truth that, let's be honest, we all needed to be reminded of. The truth that feeling fear is unavoidable. We all feel fear. It's a normal human emotion. You can't escape that. And especially during this season with so much uncertainty, feeling fear is unavoidable. But acting in fear, well, that's optional. You and I get to choose whether we act in fear. And the choices we make are determining the story we write. We don't have to choose to act in fear. We don't have to choose to be driven by fear. We can choose a much better story. Now, the reason I know that is because of the example of the earliest followers of Jesus, because they lived not just a year or two years where there was fear. They lived most of their lives surrounded by, embattling, facing fear, fear that was far greater than anything you and I would ever face, and yet they were able in the middle of all of that to make choices where they didn't act in fear, where they were not driven by fear. And so as we wrap up this series today, I want to take you back to one of those stories. 
This is a story that if I were being honest, it's inspiring to me. It is encouraging to me in some ways, but it's also very, very challenging because I look at the way they responded to a situation that was filled and saturated with fear and I go, okay, I don't know if I could have done that. I don't know if I would have done that. I'm not sure. That's a story that I would have written that people would have been telling about me in the future. But there is a lesson here for you and for me, and there's some inspiration here for us. And the thing that encourages, encourages me the most is these were ordinary people just like you and me, and so they show us how even when it seems impossible, we don't have to make choices driven by fear. So let me give you a little bit of the context. It's two months after the resurrection of Jesus. It's in Jerusalem, and there are thousands and thousands of people who have begun to follow Jesus at this point. And they're following Jesus not because of his teachings. They're following Jesus because the resurrection is now undeniable to them. It is undeniable because there are 500 people in the city who saw him die and then saw him alive with their own eyes after the fact. Can you imagine what it would have been like to live in that time and just go to those people and say, what did you see and what did you see and what did you see? And they're all telling you these stories of how they saw Jesus alive. It was undeniable. It was also undeniable because Jesus' closest disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John and Matthew and Thomas and Bartholomew, all those guys, well, they had run in fear and abandoned Jesus, betrayed Jesus, left Jesus as at his arrest and his crucifixion. And now here they are two months later. And they're living so bold. They're living so fearless in the face of persecution, in the face of threats. They're looking around saying, nope, he's alive. We saw him. I mean, they have done a complete 180. And so as people are listening to all these eyewitnesses, as people are watching the completely transformed lives of these early followers, as they went from fear to boldness, they're going, okay, it's true. It's true. And so thousands and thousands of people are following. And these new followers of Jesus, well, late in the afternoon, early in the evening, every evening, they would gather in the temple, which is so ironic that this is a place they would gather. But they would gather in the temple, the very place who most opposed Jesus. And they would pray together practically every single day. And so Luke, who recorded a lot of the early history of the first church, Luke tells us that one day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Peter and John, you've probably heard of them, Peter and John, Two of the leaders of this early movement, well, they're showing up at the temple together. They're going and getting prepared and getting ready to pray with all of these early followers. And as they're walking into the temple through one of the gates, there is a man on the side just outside the temple who's a beggar. And this was commonplace. This was normal. Matter of fact, this guy was probably recognizable. This guy was probably familiar. This was probably his spot that he went to every day and he begged and, you know, he'd get a little generosity from people, a little charity. He'd, he'd get some coins, some money, and that would help him survive. So as they're walking in, this guy's standing over to the side, and he calls out to Peter and John, and he asks for money. And Peter looks at him, and Peter does something that Peter acted like was no big deal, but to everybody around, it was a huge deal. Peter looks at him and says, we don't have any money, but I'll tell you what. Because of what Jesus has done, he can heal you. In the name of Jesus, just stand up and walk. And then Peter and John, they just keep right on walking through the gate into the temple. Well, meanwhile, this guy, he hears that. And to his credit, he has enough faith, he has enough trust that he tries to stand up and walk, and he can. It's the first time in his life he's been able to walk. And this creates, as you could imagine, a major buzz, because this is not a, a place with a small crowd. This is a place where people are buzzing around all the time. And so all these people see this happen. All these people know this guy. They recognize this guy. So Peter and John just you know, walk on into the temple to get ready for the prayer gathering. But this guy, 
He's never been able to be in the temple before. They wouldn't let disabled people in the temple. They were considered unclean. And so he does what you would expect him to do. He runs as fast as he can right into the temple for the very first time. And he is so excited, and he's telling everybody he sees, and he creates such a commotion, such a buzz. Everybody's looking, going, is that the guy? That can't be the guy. Surely that's not the guy. And somebody goes, you know, they kind of peek outside the gate, and they're like, well, he's not there. And other people are going, yeah, we saw it. That's him. So it creates such a commotion that there is a huge crowd that gathers there in the temple court around Peter and John. And they begin to say, whoa, 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 how did this happen? You know, and so Peter, well, he begins to explain to them exactly why it happened. He begins to explain to them, hey, you didn't realize Jesus was who he claimed to be, but he is, and he died, and we saw him, and he's alive again, and you should choose to follow him. You should, you should choose to trust him. The only problem with Peter doing this is he's in the temple. He's in the temple controlled by the religious leaders in Jerusalem who were the very ones who had Jesus arrested and crucified. So as you can imagine, it does not sit well with these religious leaders, one, when they see a commotion in their temple because they're afraid that's going to get the attention of the Roman forces and nobody wants to see a mob take place. But they're also furious because when they go over and check it out, well, there is Peter and John. These guys are talking about the very Jesus they tried to kill and keep dead. And so they do what you might expect them to do. They grab Peter and John, they have them thrown into jail, probably the same jail they had had Jesus thrown into just a couple months before. And Peter and John spend a night in jail, and then the next morning, they call them out and they have them brought to the assembly, which is called the Sanhedrin. It was a, the group of religious leaders there in Jerusalem. But word is spread all throughout Jerusalem about what has happened, so you can imagine. It's just like with any high-profile trial or court case in America today. It's not just the religious leaders there. Oh, there's a crowd of other people who have gathered. Everybody wants to see and hear what's going to take place. This is a showdown between the people who had Jesus killed and now the people who are claiming they saw him. He's alive again. And so they begin to have this question and answer session back and forth with all of these people surrounding this assembly, including the man who Peter and John had healed. And he's there because, as you can imagine, he wants to see what happens to the guys who restored his health to him. And so Peter and John, they're having a back and forth with these religious leaders. And in the middle of this, Peter says something, I'm telling you. It was so offensive, so offensive. He looked at these religious leaders and he said, listen, here was his basic sermon. You killed him. God raised him. You better change teams. You're on the wrong side. That was what Peter told him. Yeah, that's really all Peter told anybody for the rest of his life. You killed him. God raised him. You ought to say you're sorry and change teams. And then Peter makes this statement to drive the point home. Here's what Luke tells us he said. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, we can't understand just how offensive this was because this, these religious leaders, well, they oversaw and ran the Jewish system called Judaism, which they believed and they had taught the entire Jewish people hey, this is the way that you have a relationship with God. You follow all our rules and you practice our Judaism. And now here Peter and John are looking at them going, no, 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 your way's wrong. Your way's not going to accomplish that anymore. Salvation is found nowhere else but in Jesus. Now, for some of you, this is exactly the problem you have with Christianity, right? It's just so exclusive. You don't understand how there can only be one way. I mean, come on, they're good people. They're good people who try to have a relationship with God a lot of different ways. I mean, wouldn't God be okay with that? How can there only be one way? But let me remind you, 
before you just write Christianity off because it's so exclusive to you. And this seems so offensive. Let me just remind you that the two guys who made this statement, Peter and John, they are two guys who watched their leader crucified on a Roman cross. They watched him buried in a, in a borrowed tomb. And then three days later, they saw him with their own eyes. They watched him die. A few days later, they're having breakfast with him on the beach. And so suddenly, to them, their leader, who just before his arrest had looked at them and said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one, imagine how arrogant this must have sounded. This is so arrogant unless it's true. Jesus had said to them, no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, the one who had said that and sounded so arrogant, well, now he had proven he was who he said he was and he could do what he said he would do. <laughs> he had died and walked out of a tomb on his own power. So Peter and John are convinced. There's salvation in no one else. What Jesus said really is true. It's the only way. And so they're there and they're debating back and forth and they make this statement. And Luke tells us what happens next. He says, when they, talking about the religious leaders, okay, who had had them arrested, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, because they'd never seen that kind of courage out of them before, and when they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were just like you and me, well, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And then I love this next part. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Luke's going, listen, these religious leaders would have loved nothing more than to grab Peter and John, march them straight to Pilate and say, we'd like to request two more crucifixions, please. We're ready to shut these guys up. But that was going to be hard to do. Because right there in front of the entire crowd is the man they healed. So what can you say? What can you do when the proof is right there? And so here's what they do. They threaten Peter and John. They say, we don't want to hear you say the name of Jesus ever again. And then they let them go. Now, when they let them go, what do you think Peter and John did? What would you have done? Well, they didn't do what I think most of us would have done. They didn't jump on a mule and get out of Jerusalem as quick as they could. No, no, no. They just went right back to their friends there in Jerusalem, their friends who were followers of Jesus, and they told them everything that had happened. And then they all gathered and they began to pray. And this, if you tuned out, tune right back in. This is what I want you to notice. This is so, so powerful. Here's what Luke tells us happened next. Sovereign Lord, they said, this is them praying, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. See, this is so different than the way we start our prayers, isn't it? I mean, we're like, God, thank you for this day. You know, it just kind of just gets us started. It's so benign. It's, it's so common. No, no, no. They start out with Sovereign Lord. In other words, God, we recognize right off the bat you are large and in charge. Emperor Tiberius is sitting up there on a Roman throne. He thinks he's in charge. We know he's not in charge. We know ultimately you, God, are in charge. Now, it fascinates me that they would say that, that they would start this way, that they would recognize that. When the God that they know is in charge let them sit in a jail cell the night before. But they just assumed, you know what? God's got a bigger purpose and a better plan. We're just going to trust him. Sovereign Lord, we are certain that you are in charge. And then... They begin to quote one of their former kings, King David. Here's what they said next. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And you said, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They continue, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, referring to Jesus. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate 
the Jewish king and the Roman governor, well, they met together with the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And the people of Israel, the Jewish people, they were all on, in on it together. They met together in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And then they say this, they did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, as they're praying, they're going, God, we know you weren't surprised by anything that happened. You weren't surprised by Jesus being arrested. You weren't surprised by him being crucified. We were surprised. We missed it entirely. He kept trying to warn us, and we just wouldn't listen to him. We couldn't believe it happened, but you weren't surprised. This was all part of your plan. You knew beforehand everything that was going to take place, and you had a purpose behind it. And then they shift their prayer, and they begin to make some specific requests of God. Now, I just want you to pause here and think about this. If you had gone through what Peter and John had gone through, what would you be asking God to do for you? Well, all you have to do is take a look at some of the recent prayers you prayed. Probably gives you a good clue, right? Most of us, the way we would pray is, well, God bless me and be with me and protect me and help me. And, oh, by the way, while we're going through this, can you help me lose that quarantine 15 that I put on? And can you make sure I don't catch COVID? I mean, we've got so many prayers that are so self-centered. They're so little. They're so small. Maybe the reason we never see God do anything big is because we only pray prayers that are little. Maybe the reason we never see God do extraordinary work through us is because all of our prayers are just about us. That is not how they prayed. Let me show you what they prayed next. They said, now, Lord, consider their threats because, hey, they're after us. That's real. But they don't say consider their threats and protect us. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. To which I'd been there, if I had been there, I would have said, whoa, 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 Peter and John. I, boldness is what got you into this mess to begin with. You don't need to be praying for more boldness. Boldness is what got you thrown in jail. Boldness is nearly what got you killed. You don't need more boldness. But I'm telling you, once upon a time, there were a group of followers of Jesus who prayed such big, bold, awe-inspiring, audacious, fearless prayers. Once upon a time, there were a group of followers of Jesus who were so committed, they prayed so fervently to be able to introduce people to Jesus and his peace, even if it cost them their own protection and their own peace. This is what they were praying. They continue on. They said, stretch out your hand, God, to heal, to perform signs and wonders through the name of your servant Jesus, because if people see that, well, they'll believe our message. If people see that, they'll see evidence and know that it's true. They continue. It says, Luke tells us, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice this. They spoke the word of God boldly. Now, don't miss this. They didn't speak the word of God obnoxiously. They spoke it boldly. They didn't speak the word of God by cramming it down somebody's throat. They didn't speak the word of God by shoving it on top of somebody. They didn't speak the word of God by condemning all of the Roman and Jewish politicians who were clearly out of the will of God. They didn't even speak the word of God boldly by boldly declaring about Jesus' teachings. They didn't boldly declare Jesus' parables. They didn't boldly declare their theological beliefs. They didn't even boldly declare about sin and hell. Don't miss this. You know what they prayed for and then boldly declared? This right here. Verse 33 tells us, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
This is what they boldly declared. The foundation of their faith, the foundation of our faith, the fact that Jesus had died and he was alive again. This is all they cared about. This is what they most wanted people to know. What they had seen and heard and experienced. And because of that, they were able to step into situations where absolutely they felt fear. It was unavoidable. But they knew they did not have to act in fear because they followed a Savior who had conquered fear. He had conquered death. So what was there to fear? And we can do the same. Which leads me right back to the question I asked you at the beginning. What story do you want to be told about you? Come on, on the other side of all of this, when all the election stuff is completely over and it's done, everything's settled down, when the pandemic is over, everybody's back to normal, when your retirement investments are back where you want them to be, when everything's just back like you want it to be, when things are normal, what story do you want to be told about you? What do you want people saying about you? I'll tell you what I hope is said about me. I'll tell you what I hope the story is about us as Christians, about us as a church. I hope people will say this, that we were informed. We did not stick our head in the sand and act like there was no problem. We were informed, but we were not worried. We were responsible. We did the responsible thing for people, and we were compassionate, that we were aware. We knew about the needs we had, and we were still generous, that we were engaged. We didn't ignore everything. We were engaged, but we were not divisive that we were principled, that we continue to live out our values, but we were not judgmental of others, that we may have felt fear, but we were not driven by fear. You know what I hope our communities say about us? I hope on the other side of this they say, you know what, the worse things got, the better those Christians were. The darker things got, the brighter their light shined. That they showed up, when nobody else would show up, that they were generous in ways that were irrational and made no sense in ways that nobody else would be generous, that our communities were better because they were here. That's what I hope they say about you. That's what they should say about you and should say about me because that is exactly what our leader and our Savior, that is the example and the model that he set for us. And if we will follow him, this is what our story will be as well. So, before we wrap up, I want to give you a couple questions, and I want to encourage you not just to take some time to reflect on these yourself, but to take a little bit of time to talk about them with whoever you're watching this with or with your small group, with some friends. So here they are. First question is this. What story are you writing? You need to be honest with yourself about that. What story are you writing? If all of this ended right now, what are people going to be saying about you a few years from now? What are the people you care about most going to say about you? And then what decisions could you make to write a better story? I bet we've all got some we can make. Second question is this. Who can you serve today? How can you be generous this week? Let's be specific. In what way can you love someone like Jesus has loved you? Because if you will begin to do those things, you will start to write, or you will continue to write, a better story. Listen. Your Savior, my Savior, our Savior... He did not live in fear. He was not driven by fear. Our Savior, he was braver than death and hell itself. He was tough as nails. 
Our Savior was not fragile in the face of difficulty. So those of us who follow him, we don't have to be fragile either. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be driven by fear. We don't. You. You can write a better story. You can write a story that you'll be proud of. But you can write a story, more importantly, that on the other side of this, your heavenly Father will be proud of, and he will use to point more people to him. Your story, it will be a better story if you will follow the example of our Savior and our leader. Your story will be a better story if you'll choose to give and to serve and to love, even when it doesn't make sense. Your story will be a better story if you will not be anxious and afraid and allow that to drive your decisions. Your story will be a better story if you will make your story all about helping people understand our Savior's story and the difference His grace and His love and His forgiveness can make in their lives. Our Savior set us the example. He was braver than death and hell itself. He was tough as nails. And you and I, well, we can be too. Let me pray for us. Father, it, it's unavoidable for us to feel fear, and there's so much uncertainty in our world right now. It, everywhere we turn, every story we hear, every, every news story, every conversation we have seems to have an opportunity to stir up fear inside of us. So would you remind us that we follow a Savior and a leader. You, Jesus, you walked out of the tomb. You walked out of hell. You, you conquered all of that. So would you help us to have your courage? Would you help us to choose to write a better story just like Peter and John and those early followers chose? Would you help us to be a group of people who on the other side of this, not only do we have a story we can tell, but we have a story that's made the lives of those around us better. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.